dive in to our new sermon series. And you may have already figured it out by the shirts, but this sermon series today is called Love First. Love First. Love First. And the reason we're calling this Love First, we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks exploring what Jesus has to say about the power of love. Because what we believe and what the Bible teaches is that love is the thing. It is the most important thing. Our mission as a church is to bring people and God together in what? In love. To bring people and God together in love. And the reason we have that as a mission statement is because Jesus says this is the thing to do. So I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture then I'm going to launch into this sermon. We're going to explore it together. Uh, we're going to start in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. And here's what it says. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard Jesus and some other people debating. Noticing that Jesus had given the Pharisees and the Sadducees a good answer, this teacher of the law asked Jesus, said this, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Somebody say, what's most important? Which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord. Somebody say, love the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, he only asked for the most important one, but Jesus said, let me give you a bonus track. He said, the second one, the second most important is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Today I'm going to preach for just a few moments on the subject, what's most important? What is most important? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you. We are grateful, so deeply grateful so honored to be able to do the work of your kingdom and so grateful to be able to do it with a family of people who adore you and are in pursuit of you, people who long to please you and people who seek to uh, love you with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors as themselves. I pray, Lord God, that this sermon would be enlightening and enlivening. It would enlighten our minds and enliven our hearts to do the work that you've called us to do. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. A few years ago, uh, my wife went on a trip with some friends down to Florida. And that meant that I would be uh, responsible for taking care of all four children during the time that my wife was away. My wife is a risk taker. She's just a, she's just a risk taker. But what she did was she, she drafted a comprehensive list of duties, responsibilities, and obligations for me while I was gone. She said, I want you to know what you're supposed to do when I'm out of the house. I have the list with me today, and I'm just going to read you some parts of it. It says, make sure the kids brush hair and teeth in the morning. That's fair. Make breakfast. Let Cassius out for potty. Cassius is our dog. Give Cassius food and water. Probably in the reverse order, but food and water. But anyway, parks, uh, p- pack school lunches. Remember, Lincoln is a vegetarian. 
Drive Jameson and Lincoln to school. Pick up neighbor kids for carpool. Get Eden and Augustine to the bus stop. Empty dishwasher. Wash breakfast dishes. Make beds. Put dirty clothes in hamper. Let Cassius back out for potty. That's the morning duties. That was the morning list. Afternoon list. Pick up Eden and Augustine at the bus stop. Jameson and Lincoln ride bus home. Make dinner. Empty and clean lunch boxes. Take Eden and Augustine to wrestling practice. Take Jameson and Lincoln to climbing practice. Pick up all kids from all practices. Help all kids with homework. Review emails and notifications from school. Put dinner dishes away. Take out trash. Make sure that all kids brush teeth before bed. Lights out. 9 p.m. That was the list. So I read that list, and that seemed like a lot of stuff for me to do. So what I did after my wife was safely on the plane is that I looked through the list again and I asked myself, what's most important? <laughs> like surely all of these cannot be priorities. They're all things to do, but what's most, what's most important to do? And what I did was I distilled the list down into a central principle. One central principle that I could, that I thought I could accomplish. And the central principle was basically like this. Keep the kids alive and relatively healthy. <laughs> Keep them alive and relative. That was the most, that was the most important thing to do. That's what it boiled down to. Did we hit 100% on dental hygiene? No, we did not. <laughs> did we hit 100% on homework? We did not. Did we hit 100% on bedtime? Not every night. Not on, but the kids were alive and relatively healthy when my wife returned, so I accomplished the most important thing. In all different areas of our lives, we all ask this question, what's the most important thing? What's most important? On your job, you have multiple tasks, multiple duties, multiple obligations, emails, calls, and meetings. You have stuff to do. But you got to ask yourself, what's most important? Because if you focus on things that are not important and not on the things that are important, you'll lose your job. So it's important to know what's most important. All the students here, right? You got quizzes, you got classes, you got, you've got uh, events, you got sports, you got all kinds of things to do. But in order to succeed in college, you have to say, what's most important? What's the most important thing to do in our job, in our school, in our relationship. But the number one area of our life where we have to answer this question, the number one aspect of our life where it's most important to know what's most important is the spiritual aspect of our lives. And I'll tell you why. Because it is the spiritual reality that puts the physical reality in order. We have to have the spiritual life aligned so that our ordinary physical life can be aligned. If we don't have a sense of what is ultimately important, what is transcendently important, what is absolutely and objectively important, then we have no means by which to organize order and give structure to the rest of our lives. So like if you're pursuing things at work, or pursuing things at school, or pursuing things in relationships, or pursuing dreams or aspirations, but you don't know the underlying reason, you don't know what the spiritual ultimate goal is, you'll lose track of what's important. So the most important question is to ask God what's most important. That's why this question from this lawyer to Jesus was such a pressing and poignant and prescient question because he was asking the most important question about the most important thing. 
It's the most important because it gives meaning to everything else. Everything else we learn about, medicine and law and science and art and history and everything else. Underneath all of that, we have to ask the question, what is most important? Jesus' answer in this moment is fascinating because if you know anything about Jesus' teachings, a lot of times you know that he gave really cryptic and opaque answers. He would sometimes give answers in parables or riddles, and he would say things, and then you would, you, it would take a long time. It still does sometimes. We read it, and we go, but what does he really mean, right? Sometimes he consciously and purposely left things opaque and unclear. Because, and then he would go tell his disciples, well, I said this so that they wouldn't understand because I want you to understand, right? But this time, he is, there's no question about his answer. His answer, his answer is emphatic, simple, and unequivocal. When the lawyer says, what's the most important of God's commandments? Jesus answers essentially with one word and says, love. Love. Love is the most important thing. It's the most important truth. It's the most important reality. It's the most important force. It's the most important of God's commandments. It's more important than the law of circumcision. It's more important than the law of Sabbath. It's more important than the law of tithing. Right? It's the most important thing. In fact, he says, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two rules, love God and love neighbor. That means that everything Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, Daniel, David, Amos, and Obadiah had to say, all of the great truths that they expounded, all the laws and ordinances of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of the poetry and Psalms and all the wisdom in Proverbs, all the teachings and the stories and the, and the epistles of the New Testament, everything in the Bible is summed up in one word, and that word is love. Here's something that a lot of people know. Jesus didn't come up with this on his own. This command to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength is something that had been in the word of God from the very beginning. In fact, if you go into an observant Jewish family's home, even today, you will see an object nailed to the right side of their doorpost as you walk into their home. It looks, it looks like this. It's called a mezuzah. And a mezuzah is a little box, and in this box is contained a scripture from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, and the scripture is from Deuteronomy 6, and it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it says this. Put this next scripture up. Deuteronomy 6. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is from Deuteronomy. This is the scripture that Jesus was quoting when the, when the lawyer came to him and said, what's most important? Jesus said, Deuteronomy 6 is most important. Love the Lord your God. So this is the most important answer to the most important question. And so it is so vital for us as followers of Jesus. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's so vital for you to understand what the true reality, what the true command, what the true thrust and the true goal of the Christian faith is. It is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's, I'm going to spend a few moments just exploring what that means, okay? What does that mean to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you're taking notes, write this down. Loving God is a devotion, not an emotion. It's a devotion, not an emotion. It's an ethic, not just a feeling. It's a commitment, not just a transient experience. It's a decision and a discipline, not just a passing sentiment. 
Love is an action that may at times be accompanied by feelings, but it's not dependent on feelings. I'll give you an illustration of, of, of what I mean that, that will resonate, I think, with you. If you've ever been to a wedding, and I love weddings, I love going to weddings. If you've ever been to a wedding, you will have no doubt heard the bride and groom recite the wedding vows. I think there's a picture of a wedding that you can put up. Wedding vows. And if you listen closely to the vows, you will hear language in the vows that gets at the real meaning of love. And the vows go something like this. The vows say this. Do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Do you promise to love and cherish her in sickness and in health? For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. And forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her for so long as you shall live. Do you promise in the presence of God and these witnesses that you will conduct yourself at all times and in all circumstances toward her as becomes a Christian husband? Do you promise you will love, cherish, and honor her for as long as you live? If so, say, I do. You ever heard those lines? What's fascinating about those lines is what is implied in those lines. What is implied in those vows is that there will be good times and bad times. There will be rich times. There will be poor times. The vows assume that you won't always at all times necessarily feel the exact same way you do on your wedding day, and yet you are called to love. Love is an action. There will be times when you're unhappy, angry, tired, frustrated, but to love a person means that you have committed yourself to a lifelong discipline of care, service, sacrifice, generosity, kindness, empathy, and honor towards the person you married. That's what love actually means. That's what it means. It's active. Love is demonstrated, not just described. Right? It's the same with our love for God, but our love for God is demonstrated, as we learn in the Scripture, through obedience to His Word. That's what describes, that's what demonstrates our love. In fact, Jesus put it like, uh, uh, in 1 John, it's, it says this. It says, in fact, this is love for God, what? To keep his commands. This is what love looks like. So if you want to know what it's like to love a wife or a husband or even a friend or a family member, you know that to love them is to treat them with honor and love, respect and dignity, right? And if you're not treating them that way, you're not loving them. You might say you love them, but you're not loving them if you're not treating them with kindness and generosity. If you want to know whether you love God, you have only to look, we have only to look at whether we are obeying his commands. Because his command, obeying his commands is our way of demonstrating our love for him. The good news, and I'm going to tell you this in case you're feeling really crummy because you didn't obey his commands at some point this week. The good news is that God continues to love you and shower his love and grace and mercy upon you when you fail, as we all do, to love him rightly. His love keeps coming after us when we do not love him well. His love keeps pursuing us even when we are not pursuing him. This is the beautiful, this is the beautiful part about his love. But his call to us is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. To love God means I will bow my will before him, my body before him, my mind before him, my desires, my pleasures, my pursuits, my hopes, my dreams. I will align my life with his lordship and over and over again I will seek to honor him and love him and obey him because I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I obey him not out of compulsion, 
not out of fear, not out of a, a desire to prove myself worthy of his love, because his love never stops coming towards me, but rather out of joyful and exceedingly grateful love for him, for who he is and for what he's done for me. So this is a very different kind of love than a grudging, obligatory, grit-your-teeth kind of obedience that just says, I'm trying to be obedient because I think I'm supposed to be obedient. I need God to love me, so I'm trying to be obedient. Right? This is different from that. This is a love that flows out of our experience of God's love for us. In other words, if you're taking notes, write this down. Obedience is not a goal, it's a gauge. It's not a goal, it's a gauge. When I check the air pressure on my tires, I use a tire gauge. And my goal is not for the tire gauge to hit a particular number. My goal is that the tire gauge will tell me how much air pressure is in there. I want it to rightly tell me how things are going inside of the tire. The gauge for our love for God is our obedience to God. When we are serving Him and loving Him and doing what He's called us to do, we are demonstrating our love for Him. Jesus brought these two things together over and over through the scripture. He said this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In verse 23, he says, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word. So I don't want us to think of love as some kind of hazy, mushy, spongy abstraction. Love for God is demonstrated through the spiritual discipline of obedience irrespective of expedience. That means we obey him even when it's difficult. We obey him in progressively better commitments. How many of you know, maybe we shouldn't, let's not raise our hands on this one. Um, As we grow in our spiritual life, we obey better. We do. When I first became a Christian, uh, I just was blown away by all the ways that I was disobedient to God. And over the years, my goal has always been, let me be more obedient, not because I think God will love me more, but because I love him, I love him more. I've gotten to know him better, and I want to live better for him. I want to pursue him more. I want to honor him better because I love him, and I'm grateful to him, so thankful for him that I want to do this. I don't always do it. You don't always do it. We fail, but that's the, that's the way we demonstrate love. That's how our love grows, through obedience. My prayer is that one family church would grow into a community where we, where we as a family, where we grow in our obedience, our love, our devotion, our commitment to God, where we grow in faithful, loving obedience to him because it is through our obedience that we experience true life. Did you know that, that Jesus said, I have, I have come to tell you these things that you might have peace. He said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. So the, the, re, the reaction, the, the, uh, the consequence of our living out of obedience and love to God is joy and peace and, and long-suffering and hope and vibrancy. It's, it, we actually benefit by loving God because our life expands because we're connected to the one who created us in love. So that's the most important one, right? That's the most important thing. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus gives the bonus track. He says, you only ask for one, but I'm going to give you also the second most important. The second most important actually flows from the first, the first law, the first commandment. It flows necessarily from that first commandment. And as you'll see in the moment, the second test is a litmus test to determine whether you're actually following the first test. 
The second most important is this. Verse 31, we've read this. It says the second thing is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm going to talk about loving your neighbor in just a moment, but before I do, I want to touch on what it means to love yourself. This is a very, very important part of the scripture. It's implied. The, the, the explicit command is love God, love your neighbor, but the implicit command is love yourself because he uses yourself as a point of comparison. He says love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love your neighbor to the degree to which you love yourself or love your neighbor like you love yourself. So what does that mean to love ourselves? What does self-love actually mean? Here's my note for self-love if you want to take this down. Self-love is not selfish love. Self-love means to treat yourself with a degree of dignity, honor, and respect due to a cherished member of God's own family. I might be writing this down. Self-love means to treat yourself with a degree of dignity, honor, and respect due to a cherished member of God's own family. How, how many of you have been watching the royal family on the news recently? Is anybody following this? Some of you are reluctantly... So reluctantly putting your head up. I don't really follow the royal family that much, but I have watched some of the reports this week, and it's fascinating. I've, I've started to learn some things about the royal family over uh, in the UK that I did not know about. Uh, I learned that there, there are a lot of things that happen when a child is born into the royal family. Go ahead and put that picture up. We've got some. You can just follow me with those photos. Um, when a child is born into the royal family, they're treated with a heightened degree of respect, dignity, and honor afforded to them by their association with royalty. When a royal child is born, they're first presented to the sovereign leader, whether it's the queen or the king, before they're presented to the public at large. So there's a picture of, uh, of one of the little princes, I think it's baby Archie, being presented to the queen. This is, this is what happens when you're born into royalty. You meet, you meet the sovereign. Then they're taken on a world tour. They're presented to world leaders who embrace them and wish them well. So uh, Bishop Tutu might actually kiss you on the head if you want to go to the next one. There you go. If you're a royal baby. Then they're baptized in a special ceremony by the Archbishop of Canterbury himself with water taken from the Jordan River. So this is, this is William and Kate Middleton presenting Prince George for baptism. Water from the Jordan River. That's pretty special. Then they're brought up in Buckingham Palace. I mean, it's a nice place. With a large staff of tutors, maids, coaches, servants, nannies, chefs, butlers, who are there to ensure that they are well-fed, well-educated, and well-bred. Buckingham Palace. They're surrounded 24 hours a day by royal guards who are committed to their health, safety, and well-being. It's a pretty special life. And the reason that these children are afforded this degree of dignity, honor, and respect by those around them is not due to their own accomplishments. It's due to their identity as members of the royal family. When Jesus teaches us that we are to love ourselves, he's tapping in to a central truth about your identity. The scripture teaches that we are to love ourselves not because of what we've done, because if we love ourselves because of what we've done, then our love is going to go up and down depending on how well we're doing. We don't love ourselves because of how well we're doing, because of what we've done. We love ourselves because of who we are. And to be more specific, because of whose we are. John 1.12 says, To all who did receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's you. That's me. 
1 Peter 2 says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who you are. Romans 8 says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Do you realize what that means? That means co-heirs with Christ means Jesus is our big brother. We have been adopted and grafted into the family. We are royalty. We are God's children. We are children of the king. Why are we to love ourselves? Because we are God's beloved children, worthy by our association with him of the highest degree of dignity, honor, and respect. We carry his image within us. We bear his seal of approval upon us. We carry his spirit within us. We walk in his protection. We walk in his provision. We walk in his promise. We are members of his royal family. We are emissaries of his kingdom, not of a kingdom that will perish, but a kingdom that will roll through eternity, a kingdom ruled and governed by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what's fascinating is we're not just subjects of that kingdom. We're not merely servants of that kingdom. We're sons and daughters of the king himself. We're his children, his heirs, and his offspring. This is not just what we are. This is who we are. And as children of the king, we are indeed called to love ourselves, not with vain self-absorption, not with narcissistic self-obsession, but we are to love ourselves because of the value imbued in us through our familial association with him. This is why we develop our minds. This is why we develop our bodies. This is why we strengthen our wills. This is why we rest. This is why we work. This is why we study. This is why we serve. This is why we do what we do in the kingdom of God, because that's what royals do. We're serving as children in the royal family. If you truly love God and you rightly understand your identity as, a chi- as his child, you will begin to treat yourself the way he wants you to be treated, with dignity, honor, and respect. You will begin to treat yourself as a child of God. My prayer is that we, as one family church, will create an environment where we grow in our understanding of our true identity. May we recognize that we are made in God's image and in God's likeness. We have the Imago Dei, the imprint of God, the thumbprint of God upon each and every one of us. We bear his image. We are his image bearers. May we recognize that we are children of the king, that his royal blood now flows through our veins. That we who were wretched and poor now can sing, praise God, praise God, we are children of the king. And this, of course, leads us to the third object of our love found in the second most important commandment in the Bible. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So we've learned about loving God. We've learned about loving self. What does it mean to love our neighbor? If you're taking notes, write this down, and I'm going to close with this. Loving your neighbor means bearing responsibility for the well-being, not only of yourself, but also of your family, your community, and even of strangers and enemies. (laughs) This is what loving your neighbor means. Bearing responsibility for the well-being, not only of yourself, but also of your family, your community, and even of strangers, and yes, even of enemies. This is what love means. Because we know this because Jesus illustrated this commandment with a story that we all know very well, with the story of a man who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was robbed, and he was beaten, and he was left half dead at the side of the road. Remember the story? And along comes a priest and sees the man and walks by on the other side of the road. 
without any care or concern for this man. And then along comes a Levite and walks along the other side of the road without any care or concern for this man who was lying half dead on the side of the road. But then along comes someone that the audience in Jesus' day would not have loved, somebody who didn't fit within the mold, somebody who was outside of, the, of, of, of religious propriety at that time. And you know this part of the scripture. It says, a Samaritan, a Samaritan as he traveled, came to where the man was. This is Luke 10, 33. Came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. I want you to notice what he's doing. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn. So that's two things. He bandaged his wounds, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense I may have. So he healed his wounds, he took him to an inn, and then he said, I'm going to cover any additional expense that comes along. There's three things represented in this moment, this picture of love. Three things. Resuscitation, restoration, reparation. Resuscitation means that he brought a man that was half dead to life. How many of you know when you're half dead, you're at 50%. You can go either direction. You're either going to go full dead or full alive. Those are your two choices. Resuscitation means I'm going to stop. I'm going to put some healing salve on the wounds. And I'm going to bring this person back to life. That's resuscitation. But he didn't stop there. He restored the man. He put the man on his donkey and brought him to the end. It wasn't enough to just stop the bleeding. He wanted to restore the man back to health. He could have resuscitated the man and left him at the side of the road. But he said, I want to take you the next step. I want to restore you to health and then he took it one step further he sought to repair the circumstances of the man not just to resuscitate him not to just to restore him but to repair the damage that had been done to him to repair the consequences of the injustice that had been done to him to put the man in the position that he would have been in if he hadn't suffered the injustice in the first place. That's, that was the goal of repair. But this is a special kind of repair because generally in a, in a court of law, when you are required to pay restitution or reparation, the one who is required to do that is the one who caused the, the problem in the first place. But notice that this is different. The Samaritan had nothing to do with the harm that was done to the man. And yet he said to the innkeeper, here's some money, cover his stay. And if he needs to stay longer, put it on my tab. He wanted to repair him all the way back to the position he would have been, but for the injustice that he had incurred. This is what love looks like. This is the kind of love Jesus is talking about. It's the kind of love that bears responsibility, not only for you, not only for your family, not only for your community, but also for strangers and yes, even your enemies. Would you resuscitate your enemy on the side of the road? Or would you give him an extra kick? <laughs> would you go further and restore them to health? Would you take it even further and try to make sure that they were put in the same position that they would have been if they hadn't experienced the pain and the injustice in the first place? How far does our love go? 
Last point. Your love for others is measured not by what you say, but by what you sacrifice. Not by what you say, but by what you sacrifice. My prayer from the beginning of One Family Church has been that One Family Church would be a place that is a blessing. A blessing to our community. That we would be givers, not takers. That we would be a source of resuscitation, restoration, and reparation for our community. That we would resuscitate, restore, and repair the broken places. In the words of Isaiah, my prayer has been that the Spirit of the Lord God would be upon us. That the Lord would anoint us to preach good tidings unto the meek. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That we would comfort those who mourn. That we would give to those who mourn beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Why? So that they might be called trees of righteousness, strong, the planting of the Lord, so that he might be glorified. My prayer for One Family Church has always been that we would bring the peace of God and the power of God to the people of this world. That we would be a place where people would look at us, they would see our good deeds, and they would honor our Father in heaven. They would see us as a people who don't just say that we love, but sacrifice like we love. That serve, and that we pour out, and that we are a place that says we are here for you. You're not here for us. We are here for you. We are outward facing. We're a church that says we want to serve in this community. We want to bless this community. We want to make this place. We want to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be a part of that. So rather than, I thought about this two different ways this week. Rather than looking back at the last 11 years, which we could do. God has done an amazing work in this church in the last 11 years. Amazing work. And you all know what that looks like. Someday we'll recount all that. But what I want to do today is look forward. Say, God, where are you taking us? Because I believe God wants us to lean further into love. I think he wants us to lean further into love for him, further into right love for ourselves, and further into love for our neighbors. Further into what it means to do the most important thing. He has work for us to do. He has plans for us to fulfill. He has assignments for us to complete. He has souls for us to win to his kingdom. He has lives for us to transform through the power of his word and through the power of his spirit. So let us today commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to always doing that which is most important. To loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourself. And here's how I'm going to end it. When we fail, as we will do. When we falter, when we struggle, when we do not love God completely, when we do not love ourselves rightly, when we do not love others sacrificially, let us not be dragged down by shame and condemnation, but rather let us remember the source of our strength, let us remember the source of our salvation, because we are not only the givers of love, but we are the recipients of love. Let us remember the words in the Gospel of John that we may have learned as a little child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever
everlasting life. God demonstrated his love for us through sacrifice. We love him because he first loved us. We loved him because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We love him because he gave his life for us. We love him because when we scorned him, he sacrificed. Because when we were running from him, he was running to us. We love him for not only what he's done, but for who he is. Our father, our creator, our king, and our friend. So today, as we celebrate 11 years of God's faithfulness, let's remember our central mission, which is grounded in these scriptures. Our mission is to bring people and God together in love. That's it. People to God, people to one another in love. Love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. I love I love this church and I love you guys so much thank you for the see I won't cry in the second service but this is the one that's being recorded so this is not fair thank you for the best 11 years of my life I am excited for the next 100. God, grant us long life. Let's do what God's called us to do. Let's do the most important thing. Let's spend our lives loving God, loving ourselves, and loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We love you so much. We ask that you would just draw us deeper into love. Draw us deeper out of religion. Draw us deeper out of all of the tradition of, of man and draw us deep into what it means to follow you, to honor you, to love you. Let us know, Lord, your love. Let us experience it. Let every person in this room experience the richness and depth of your love in a way that is just overwhelming. Let us experience your love for us and let us then in return love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.